0: 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. I'm gonna read verses 17, and then we're gonna go into chapter 3 and I'm gonna read through verse 5 in, in chapter 3. First Thessalonians chapter 2 beginning in verse 17. We'll read through verse 5 of chapter 3. If you don't have a copy of God's word, feel free to, as the shuffle is still happening, pick one up from the back table back there. And if you don't have a Bible, Um, There are copies for you to take. Those are our gift to you on the back table underneath the offering box back there. Feel free to pick one of those up on your way out. Similarly, if you're sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with a friend, family member, uh, co-worker, uh, those Bibles are our gift that we want you to take that and give that to them because there's no greater gift that you can give to someone who you're sharing the gospel with than uh, than, uh, the Word of God itself. Um, if, you, uh, if you don't quite know where 1 Thessalonians is, if you're not familiar with your Bible, head towards the back of the Bible. And if you run into a relatively large book, uh, of the relatively large book of Hebrews, and then sort of go back a ways, uh, you'll find 1 Thessalonians. If you have one of the black hardcover Bibles uh, that were back on that table, uh, you'll find the sermon text on page 1173. We say this regularly, but as I'm reading this text, it's good for you to see the words that I'm reading in front of you in order that you uh, might know that I'm not making these up, but they are in fact the inspired word of, of God. And then the sermon will be far more enjoyable if you keep these words in front of you on your lap because we're going to be referencing them together several times throughout the morning. Uh, it's good to have it open so that you can see and maybe even mark in your Bible uh, things that strike you or that come to bear on your, your own heart. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse 17, the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes to the church in Thessalonica, But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored all the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. Because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you, and our labor would be in vain. Uh, this passage. This passage represents something that Paul does that he doesn't really do uh, many places in the New Testament. There isn't really a command given here. Rather, it is sort of an expression of love that Paul has for the Thessalonians. He talks about his heart specifically for the Thessalonian church. Do you remember the game of telephone from your childhood? Kids, maybe you play this at school sometimes. Um, A game of telephone where you begin at one end of the line of kids and someone would pick a phrase like, my grandma bakes the best cookies. And then you'd whisper it into the next kid's ear and then that kid would whisper it to the next kid's ear and then the next. And you would play it until you got to the end of the line. And then the last kid would say what they heard, usually something very different from the starting phrase, We'd say something like, my grandma bakes the best cookies, then it wind up saying, like, the blue gorilla wakes up at noon, something along along those lines. And that was a funny exercise uh, in how information travels. And of course, some kids would intentionally sabotage the whole thing, and then the game would get old, and maybe that was you. I'm the rule follower, I'm like, no, I'm going to get it right, and then other Other kids are like, no, let's make this as funny as we possibly can. At the heart of what happens is information travels across a wide group of people, and some of this has been mitigated just by the world we live in and sort of the direct relationship we can have with other people, even at great distances. But we have to recognize in the world that we live, in the Christian relationships that we have with one another, that in, interpersonal uh, communication is oftentimes a messy thing. It's not something that is, in, uh, is clean cut. There aren't typically very clean boundaries on interpersonal communication. There's a lot of things to take into consideration in a simple conversation. And I would, I would bet that many, of, if not all of us, are embroiled in some kind of relational tension in our life uh, that it comes as a result of a lack of understanding of interpersonal, how another person communicates. We ask ourselves questions uh, when we talk to other people. What words are emphasized when spoken? What is the tone of voice? Or even take, we have to take into consideration things like body language, how we actually present ourselves physically in a conversation. If you told me that you went to the prices right last week and won a new car, I might say something like, great. Um, but if I said, great, or if I said, great, that has a very different connotation. Um, one sounds very excited in a genuine way. I probably played that out very poorly, but you got the idea. But one of them, in sarcasm, uh, feels like, uh, like what? Well, what did they mean by that? Taking all of the things into consideration can be challenging. And then add in the reality that we have so many additional ways to communicate in our world. You can make a phone call. You can text someone. You can email them. And trying to determine what's being said isn't simply deciphering words. Some of you have been in situations with family or in your workplace with a coworker or a boss or even in churches in the past where all of this is weaponized. Where people take interpersonal communication and they say great in sarcasm and that, you reply, is maybe a bit mean-spirited. And then they say, Why would you say that? I just said it was great. Or where people intentionally misunderstand what you're saying in order to mischaracterize you to others in gossip. This happens in churches. It happens everywhere, but it can, in fact, happen at the local church. It happens in churches where people become less than our highest priority, where showing love to one another becomes secondary to money and buildings and and programs. Sometimes in churches, members' meetings last three or four or five hours because people double down on pet projects. Or people stir up division and create factions for the purpose of pushing personal agendas. But, friends, where men and women are tempted to weaponize their interactions, the Bible gives us ways to beat the plowshares into pruning or to beat the swords into plowshares and the spears into pruning hooks and our sniper rifles into feather dusters to take the things that could be used to harm others mainly our words and to make them into tools to build up the church the bible gives us ways to avoid all of the mess of trying to determine what someone meant when they said this or that or what their body language meant when they entered into this conversation or why they used that word when they responded to us in the way that they did. And it's more simple than we like to think. It's genuinely more simple than we like to think. because I find interpersonal communication interesting. So... There was a time where I'd watch YouTube videos about interpersonal communication and how it would worked and communication styles and that kind of thing. They're kind of like that book, It Made Waves at the End of the 90s. Maybe you've heard of it. It's called How to Win Friends and Influence People. But what I found when watching videos and reading articles and books about interpersonal communication, outside of the fact that these videos were rooted in sort of social secular psychology, is that they ultimately were just ways to subtly manipulate people into getting them to do what you want them to do. And socially acceptable, subtle manipulation misses the mark for Christian relationships. And the Bible's simple formula for avoiding relational tension and resolving relational tension that comes as a result of interpersonal communication. Again, it's very simple. Love one another. Jesus said it in John 13, 34 and 35. He said, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. People will know. That the local church is made up of individuals who are in fact Jesus' disciples because we are free from subtle manipulation techniques that the world says that we have to employ to get people to like us. People will know that we are Jesus' disciples because we are free to forgive one another even when they say dumb stuff to us. People will know that we are Jesus' disciples because we are free from analyzing every little human interaction that we have and asking a bunch of other people what they think and what they would do if they were in our situation. Oftentimes, I think as Christians, we are prone to object because it sounds a little too simple. To say love one another sounds a little too simple. But in reality, what we're doing when we say it sounds a little too simple to just say love one another is saying, I don't want to. I don't want to do it. You've heard 1 Corinthians 13 read at a wedding, but 1 Corinthians 13, while helpful for marriages is first about relationships within the local church. Paul writes there, love does not insist on its own way. And he writes, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love believes the best. This is the heart of what Paul is saying. Love believes the best when people say things poorly in word, in tone, in any way that many of the interpersonal communications could go awry. Paul says in Romans 12, 10, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Here's the rub, and here's how this ties into the passage that we read just a moment ago. Paul knew, as he wrote to the Thessalonians, there's a key implication in all of this. Two things. You cannot love those you don't know And you cannot know those with whom you spend no personal time. So there's one idea that's going to guide our time together. Usually we have several, but this is a different type of passage, like I mentioned at the outset. And so it's a little bit of a different approach to the sermon. One idea set to guide our time together this morning. And that idea is the priority of being in person. So, let's consider that Together, Would you look down at your Bible with me and look at verse 17 of chapter 2? This represents the thesis statement for what Paul is saying in this section. He sets it up about this historical situation that occurred when he and Silas were taken away from the Thessalonian church because of the threat against their lives. This verse sets up the whole section, and Paul and Silas, again, torn away. They were threatened, and in Acts chapter 17, the Jews who were jealous of the the overwhelming positive response that, that the gospel had, the gospel that Paul and Silas preached in Thessalonica, the Jews then in jealousy stirred up a mob, and that mob and the city authorities attacked the house of one of the church members hoping to find Paul and Silas. But Paul and Silas, in Acts chapter, Acts chapter 17, were directed to go to Berea from Thessalonica. And Paul says that he and Silas were torn here in verse 17. He says that they were torn away in person, and, but not in heart. Since we were torn away from you for a short time in person, not in heart. Paul and Silas loved the Thessalonians. They loved the Thessalonian church and they love and the love continued because even to the time of the letter they desired to see them face to face. Some time has elapsed and they desire still to come to them and to see them face to face in person. Paul actually says too in verse 18 that it is Satan himself who hinders them from coming to the Thessalonians. They tried again and again. And as they tried, Paul found a window to send Timothy in order to report back to Paul about what was happening in Thessalonica. And Timothy went, found things good, good things happening amongst the Thessalonians. Note too that Paul here in this passage Uh, His love for the Thessalonians created a a concern for them. A concern that they had been led astray. Look at verse 3 of chapter 3. He says, and he hopes, that no one would be moved by these afflictions. That the difficulty that the Thessalonians endured would not move them away from the Belief and the hope and the new life that they had found in Christ. Timothy was sent to encourage and exhort so that the Thessalonians would not be moved by difficulty, would not be moved by suffering. And then in verse 5, Timothy was sent to determine if the Thessalonians' faith was intact. Paul says, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Paul was fearful that Satan had tempted them to abandon their faith and if they had abandoned the Thessalonians had abandoned their faith the labor that Paul and Timothy or Paul and Silas had had performed among the Thessalonians would in fact have been in vain but the good news is that report comes back from Timothy and their work was not in vain the Thessalonians were not moved by their afflictions and no temptation had, in fact, led them astray. They stood firm in the gospel, and they received the power of the Holy Spirit from the word that Paul and Silas preached to them. Now, the implication here in this text, the heart that Paul has for the Thessalonians, implies something very important to us. If he had no love and did not care about the direction or how things panned out with the Thessalonian church, he would have not written what he writes here. But Paul says here, and he implies here, that being together, his great desire to be together with the Thessalonians is better than being separate. There is a priority here for the Apostle Paul. Look at the language Paul uses in chapter 2, verse 17 again. He has great desire, or he says, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. In verse 1 of chapter 3, he said, we could bear it no longer. and So they sent Timothy. And then in verse 5, he says, I could bear it no longer. I sent to learn about your faith. Up until this point, up until verse 5 of chapter 3, Paul, except for one exception in chapter 2, verse 18, has used not the, uh, he has said we. He said we, referring to him and Silas, but now he personalizes this even more. He puts his affection for the Thessalonians on display in an even greater way. He says, he says, I could bear it no longer. When you get a birthday card from the dentist's office that says, we wish you a happy birthday, that's nice, but it's a a little nicer when the dentist himself calls you or writes you a handwritten note paul emphasizes his personal love for the thessalonians and so when we read this passage 217 through 35 we cannot we cannot say that paul believes that being separate is equal to being together. We have to realize that Paul prioritizes being in person with the Thessalonians and he is discontent with being away from the Thessalonians. Friends, why does this matter? Why why does it matter that the implication of Paul pouring out his heart for the Thessalonians is that being in person is better than being separate? The way that Paul thinks about Thessalonians, the Thessalonians must change the way that we approach to what we talked about at the outset, loving one another as the local church. And here's what I mean. This is what I mean, because as I thought through this passage this week, and as I thought about how Paul is approaching the Thessalonians... I realize that my own tendency, and I think this is the tendency that we have because of the culture and the values that our culture has and that we live in, is that our tendency is to require people to earn our love. You've heard the term narcissism. You know uh, what a narcissist looks like. You've probably engaged with some. That that word, narcissism, comes from a story uh, that was pretty contemporary to Paul's day. A story of Narcissus, an attractive young man who could not find a wife and is ultimately punished by the gods by f- falling in love with his own reflection. This is a not a Christian story, but one that is one that helps serve our purposes this morning. He falls in love with his own reflection because he couldn't find someone who matched him in his own self-declared beauty. We're not so extreme, maybe, but we often look for ourselves in others and then we're willing to show love to them. Others who share our interests, it's a little easier to love them. Others who are kind of in our generational boundaries, it's easier to love them because we kind of think alike. Others who have similar social status, we it's easier to love them. They kind of look like us a little bit. We look to another person and we see ourselves, and since we don't need any help loving ourselves, we can give a little bit of love to that person. It's not a stretch to love them because they are, in fact, like us in a way that they reflect us. So we require others oftentimes, and if we search ourselves, I find this to be true more often than not for myself. We require others to be lovable before we'll show love to them. This is not what Jesus meant when he commanded us to love one another. It is not what he meant when he commanded us to love one another. G.K. Chesterton once wrote, he said the Bible tells us to love our neighbors and also to love our enemies probably because generally they're the same people our tendency to require people to earn our love. But the command to love one another requires us to love others regardless of what they deserve, regardless of what they look like, regardless of if they reflect us in any way, shape, or form. To show love to the Thessalonians, Paul has to, he recognizes, be present with them. To show love in the way that Jesus commands To love one another, some kind of presence needs to happen physically. Not so the Thessalonians can earn Paul's love, but so he can fulfill the command to love them. We can't allow this to be lost on us. We must prioritize being together in person as a church because it is one of the primary venues that we have to love one another. Not to give one another opportunities to prove themselves to be lovable. Not to demand that others love us. But to freely and sacrificially love brothers and sisters in Christ. It's far too often said by people who are unbelievers or who are generally skeptical of church they go they go to a church and they say it just doesn't feel like people love one another here it feels like it's not a loving place but friends if people show up demanding to feel love and for others to earn their love then they will always walk away feeling empty and frustrated But when people show up ready to love one another as Jesus commanded no matter that person's age or background or social status or interests or affinities then the church is built up and our christian witness is amplified Now I need to I have to say this because the way that this works itself out sometimes is that we like to say love one another is meant to be applied across everyone equally all of the time. And it may seem like I'm saying that as well. But what I am saying is that the church is made up of believers of Jesus Christ. And when Jesus commanded love one another, he he had a defined category for who one another was, and that was fellow believers who make up the local church. It's not that we're called not to love others who are outside of the church, but sometimes we apply this command like a blanket. We must love everyone equally in the same way. Now this rubs against us a little bit. It feels a little bit like the wrong thing to say. But the way that we love the world around us, the unbelieving world, is by loving one another within the church. By amplifying our Christian witness through love for one another that's not earned or required of one another, but that is freely and sacrificially given. The thinking that we must love everyone equally in the same way leads us to think that nothing can be said about the reality of sin of outsiders when it comes to the local church. But there are, in fact, outsiders. In order to belong to a church, you must be a believer in Jesus Christ. You must be. You cannot belong before you believe. And so the criteria for loving others within the local church is this, that they are genuinely part of the church through a profession that they've made that Jesus Christ is Lord. That is to say that they are in fact a Christian, they are in fact in Christ. So when someone says that the church isn't loving because we don't affirm Muslims go to heaven or that abortion is just a political issue or that there are more than two genders, we should all be able to live with that. To follow Jesus' command to love one another means that we must love our Christian brothers and sisters and that becomes a great witness to the world around us who deny that Jesus is Lord. And so, because we should prioritize being in person as a church in order that we might fulfill the command to love one another, we should show up to congregational worship or to community group or to Bible study, to gatherings of the saints within the life of the church, not to find out if we will be loved or to see if we can build relationships in order to see if we can love one another, but to show love for one another simply, plain and simply. As Christians, we don't need to do this relational song and dance we are free to love one another without expecting anything in return you know you got something from someone a note a card a gift card a something and you immediately because you're because we're upper midwestern people we immediately felt obligated to give them something in return But love here, according to Jesus and according to Paul, isn't a transaction. It is a free gift, in following the command, and the example of Jesus Christ, our Lord. We're free to love one another without expecting anything in return, even when others even when others say things that could be interpreted poorly. Even when others don't do things exactly the way that we would do them. Even when others don't come prepared to love you. The cart and the horse need to go in the proper order. It's love one another first. And then everything else. That's the order. This is why Paul writes so confidently about the Thessalonians. And his desire to be back face to face with the Thessalonians. Because he believes that their status is that of those who have heard the word and the Holy Spirit and power has granted them new life. Because they are in fact the church a group of believers set apart for God's purposes through the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. Those who have heard the gospel and believed the good news, they are the church. Paul is confident, he's expressed confidence over and over and over again in the first two chapters that they are the church. He said it, that they responded in repentance and they responded in faith. When the word came to them and they received the word, not as the word of man, but as the word of God. And so he is confident that he can go and fulfill Christ's command to love one another by being with them face to face. Not out of duty or obligation, but out of the very thing that compels him, love. Paul is overwhelmed with gratitude that despite the persecution the Thessalonians endured, they remain steadfast, marking out that they didn't just receive the word to be given up for something better a little bit later. Paul's affection for the Thessalonians bubbles to the surface here in this passage because he has grown confident in the transformative work the gospel has had in their lives. And so, That brings us to a conclusion, and I titled this sermon again, well, at least the subtitle is The Priority of Being in Person, and that was our one point this morning. Um, When COVID happened in 2020, uh, there was a lot of internet talk and a lot of talk in general about corporate gatherings, especially those in the case of the church and congregational worship. A lot of good clarification, I feel like, happened during that time for Christians. What do we genuinely believe about the gathering of the saints, even in the midst of something that is well outside of our control? We as Christians better know what we believe about gathering the gathering of the saints for worship. And right away, when we weren't sure what COVID was or what really was going on, we didn't gather for a few weeks as a church in March and April of 2020, This was, oddly enough, the first text that I preached to a camera in this empty room. But something that did happen in that, even though a lot of good clarification happened about what we believe about the gathering of the saints in congregational worship, something that did happen that wasn't so good was a lot of discussion surrounding the freedom that we had to assemble. Now, some of that was good. Because the freedom that we have to gather here, the freedom that we're afforded is a a privilege given to us, but it is a constitutional one that comes to us in the First Amendment. That's a good freedom. But many people were very concerned that the government would restrict religious assembly and at the same time completely comfortable with restricting themselves from assembling together. Essentially, I'm concerned that the government would say something about this part of my life, but I, I choose not to gather as well. Paul says again in verse 18 of this chapter, or the, of chapter 2, he says, but Satan hindered us from coming to you. Satan himself hindered Paul and Silas from being face to face with the Thessalonians. But brothers and sisters, we have to check and make sure that in our own hearts, that this isn't true because this freedom that we have. Because for many Christians, Satan isn't having to work very hard to keep them away from congregational worship, to keep them away from loving their brothers and sisters in Christ. Many people want the freedom to assemble. They also want the freedom not to assemble if it's inconvenient. But you can't have it both ways, and Paul makes that clear here. Because that kind of freedom is no kind of freedom at all. It's slavery. Christians are not free agents. Christians have a team. Jesus came to purchase a people for his own possession. That people is the church. Not just the gathering of the saints on Sunday morning, but everyone who has professed faith in Christ and who considers Buffalo City Church to be home or another expression of the local church in our community, our country, or across the world. We want the freedom to say, yes, we assemble without any uh, restrictions, but then we restrict ourselves. But the Apostle Peter wrote, this was in our Bible reading this morning. If you're doing the Bible reading plan, not this morning, this week. He wrote, once you are... Not a people, but now you are a people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Once, when you were outside of Christ, you were not part of the people of God. Now, in Christ, you are, in fact, part of the people of God. You are a people. You're not a bunch of free agents floating around that God did something to and then you just keep operating. No, but you have been saved into something. Into a church So the question is what are the implications of this text for us and there are three of them very quickly this whole sermon has been implications but what are the implications of this text for us the first is this hopefully these are practical first you're free to show up <laughs> you're free to show up again what we want to do is use our freedom as an excuse not to show up but what Paul is saying is that you're free to show up that's the other way around Be part of congregational worship every week. I know you get sick. I know, take a family vacation, and that's cool. (laughs) But make every effort to be here every Sunday for congregational worship because of the priority of being in person. Now, here's here's what you need to hear, because you're going to hear, like, the pastor is being a legalist. Here's what you need to hear. Because I've been asked this question, how much is enough? Is it 75% of the time? Is it 40 times a year? I don't know. Wrong question. Because it assumes a have-to mentality instead of an expression of our Christian freedom. This is an expression of our Christian freedom. Not to not show up, but to show up is an expression of our Christian freedom. What I mean is that our approach to attending church is that God frees us, enables us, and strengthens us to gather together as a congregation. You don't have to be here, but attending congregational worship is a gift from God. You're not beholden to a number or a percentage. You shouldn't be checking your attendance, and I'm not either. If you're gone for a while, I might give you a ring. But if you're looking for the bare minimum that you have to show up, you're flirting. You, in fact, are flirting with legalism because you're thinking that you can earn God's favor by showing up here or being here a certain percentage of the time. But God's favor is already on you because he has, in fact, freed you. He's freed you to love because he first loved you. And don't think of your attendance at church or anything, any gathering of the local church is a magical ticket that you're going to put on the scale of good works that somehow is going to outweigh some kind of bad thing that you did. You know that that's not the way that the gospel works. And so we should not live like that's the way that the gospel works. That thinking is in fact slavery, but you are in fact free. But additionally... You should not, and Paul is clear, you should not use your freedom as an excuse to ignore what God has commanded you in Christ. He's commanded you to love one another and not forsake the gathering of the saints in congregational worship. But to say, I'm free so I don't have to, is actually just as harmful as thinking and thinking that you're earning something by attending. In both cases, you're submitting to slavery. In both cases, you're unwilling to exercise The freedom that Christ has purchased for you. And the freedom is to live according to all that God has commanded. And God's ways, friends, are better than ours. Outside of Christ, you won't believe God's ways are better than yours. In Christ, you will realize that the freedom that you have to live according to God's ways. So you're free to show up. Your Christian freedom isn't to be exercised to not show up. It's exercised to show up. And you're free to look for other opportunities to be with God's people in Bible studies or community group, around a dinner table, fellowship before or after, congregational worship on a Sunday, meeting at the park. So that's the first implication. You are free to show up. The second is that you're free to love. Again, Paul wanted to be face-to-face with the Thessalonians so that he could pour himself out for them. He wanted to be in person because he knew that in person was a better way to show love for them. In his absence, he looked forward to seeing the Thessalonians again, and we should take his example, eagerly anticipating when we can gather again as a church. The freedom in Christ that we have to love is because he first loved us not because I'm telling you to muster up some kind of love and figure it out on some, on some of your own terms, but to think about the love that Christ showed for you. We don't withhold love for others until they prove themselves worthy, but we lead with love. First, out of the gate, we show love. And remember how we started talking about the, the messiness of interpersonal relationships right away. In Christ, you're free to lead in those situations with love. You're free to believe the best. You're free to forgive any and every offense. You're free not to insist on your own way. You're free to sacrificially pour yourself out for others, even when they don't deserve it. And friends, they rarely, if ever, do. I rarely, if ever, do. Because the love of God came to you when you didn't deserve it, you're free to show up and to lead with love. And you don't need to worry about how you will get what you need because God has promised that He will supply all that you need. Trust Him and He will provide for you. He is abounding in steadfast love and you will be fully saturated in it. Third and finally, You're free to see Christian brothers and sisters as your glory and your joy. Look at the end of verse 19, Paul, or in verse 20, Paul points out, for you are our glory and our joy. This is not just an apostle, church member, church plant relationship. This is the relationship that each and every one of us can have with the others here. Paul writes that the Thessalonians are his glory and his joy. And we ask, what on earth do you mean, Paul? But it means when on the last day, when Jesus returns, we will not boast in how many times we served in the nursery. We will not boast in how many meals we delivered to the poor. We will not boast in our magical at- church attendance tickets that we think that we can throw on a scale. Rather, we will boast in the impact of Christ's love flowing to others through us. That will be our boast. Our boast will be that because of the strength that the Holy Spirit gives us that we put love on display for the world by loving one another within the church. Because if you look up and down your pew right now, the people sitting here are in fact those people. They're your glory and your joy. And if you don't know them, it's time to shake their hand and introduce yourself. Like the Thessalonians were Paul's glory and joy. So you are one another's glory and joy. You are my glory and my joy. Not because I've done something for you, but because Christ has done something and wants to do something through me and in you and through you and in me. Because these are the people who when gathered together are the recipients of Christ's love through you. And so, church, may we exercise our freedom to love one another in Christ, and may those around us be our crown of boasting, our glory, and our joy at the coming of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you have freed us in Christ not to do the things that we desire in our hearts, but to submit fully to all that you've commanded to us in your word. God, would we freely forgive? God, would we freely encourage? God, would we freely love our brothers and sisters in Christ here within the local church so that your name would be made famous amongst the people of Jamestown? So that we would, as your people, declare your excellencies. So that we would see men and women and boys and girls abandon the kingdom of darkness. So that we would continue to lay siege to the gates of hell. So that everything that we do would be in step with what you command us. God, forgive us for our unbelief. Would we see how we have been freed? Would we see how our freedom is to be used? God, draw us nearer now to you, even in these final moments of worship. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.